Well, you obviously didn't get the email about fancy dress. <laughs> You're probably wondering why I'm wearing American football gear. I'm not going to tell you for the moment. But I do want to ask you a question straight out the gate. And it's simply this. When you think about your faith, as far as you are concerned, what is non-negotiable? When you think about your faith, what is the one thing that you would take a bullet for? That's um, a really, really serious question. Because, let's face it, church history is littered with debate and debacle, with disagreement and division over really, really important issues like, who's allowed to be on the flower rotor? (laughs) Should we use overhead projectors? What kind of bread should we use in communion? Crumbly, flaky stuff or little wafery stuff that sticks to the roof of your mouth? What mode of baptism is appropriate? Should we just get a little bit wet or really, really, really wet? And if you're from my background where our church was deacon-possessed, what colour should we paint? the toilets. (laughs) This is the stuff that churches have split over for centuries. And it's really important stuff, isn't it? Or maybe not. Actually, the truth is, it's kindergarten stuff. You know, the real stuff is um, much more serious than that. It's important stuff like um, this book, Why is this book authoritative over our faith, over our beliefs, over our practice? When you're in that argument and you go, but that's wrong because the Bible says, and somebody says, well, why should I believe the Bible? That's the kind of important stuff we're talking about. In fact, do you know why we can say it's important because it's in the Bible? It's in the Bible, yeah. You see, the Bible is a written eyewitness Account, a collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other corroborating eyewitnesses. They record supernatural events that took place as the fulfillment of specific prophecies and in doing so prove that the writings are actually divine in origin, not human. That's why when the Bible says something, we can go, that's it. We can bank on that. It's the truth. It's right. Other issues as well, like Jesus. Like, who is Jesus? That's the big question in our world at the moment. You can switch the History Channel on any week you want, and there will be some documentary trying to find the historical Jesus, as if the historical Jesus is somehow different from the Jesus who broke out of the tomb, raised the dead, walked on water, calmed storms. Then there's important issues like the cross. What was the cross really about? Just a few years ago, a famous Christian author was saying, if the father condemned Christ to die on the cross and punished him there, then that's nothing more than cosmic child abuse. But actually, Jesus said, I lay down my life just to pick it up again. These are the serious things. These are the kind of things we need to be thinking about whether we're prepared to take a bullet for. 
And so what I want to say is welcome to our new autumn series on Galatians, because we're going to tackle some of this stuff and much more. But there's two key reasons that we're going to be preaching through this book. The first one is when Steve Backland was with us a while back, he kind of, in the middle of a talk, dropped this kind of little prophetic bomb, and some people caught it and some didn't, and we wanted to make much of it, and it's simply this. He said, whoever reads and gets Galatians is truly free. And if you've been around this place long enough, you know that freedom is kind of one of our battle cries. It's one of our core values. It's one of the things that actually we would take a bullet for. In fact, the pinnacle verse of this whole letter to the Galatians is 5.1, and it says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Christ didn't just come to set you free. He set you free so you could live free. And in over 2,000 uh, years of church history, this one concept, the, the gospel of freedom, has been under attack after attack after attack. More often than not, from within the church. And what's happened is the church has lurched from one kind of pendulum swing to the other that is kind of imbalanced. So on one side, people have leant towards legalism. It's not Jesus that saves you. It's Jesus plus a whole bunch of stuff you do, like you have to get baptized or you have to go on this pilgrimage or you have to go and find um, this particular relic. That's what launched the Reformation over 500 years ago. Martin Luther saw the state of the church in his day and people saying it's not just Jesus, but it's a whole bunch of other stuff you have to add to that. And he went nuts. He nailed 95 objections to the church door in Wittenberg and he said, this will not do. We can't have people thinking they're getting saved just because they're getting baptised or just because they're going on some pilgrimage or because they're touching some kind of relic. I mean, can you imagine how it would be if I, I bought a little box up here now all nicely varnished with brass corners with a glass panel in the top and I said, behold, Pete Carter's squash shoes. <laughs> if you touch these squash shoes, you too can have eternal life. I mean, it's just crazy, isn't it? So on one hand, the church has lurched this way into it. But on the other hand, the church has lurched the other way, almost in, in, in reaction against that, where they said, well, if we're saved by Jesus, then we can do whatever we want, and it doesn't matter. And Paul aggressively tackles both of those errors. Why? Because for him, the gospel of freedom was everything. Everything. C.S. Lewis famously said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, but if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So, why the American football outfit? Well, you didn't miss the email about fancy dress, I'm just showing off. You see, American football is a game that has two kinds of plays. There's offensive play and there's defensive play. And in offensive play, the idea is to get the ball, to gain ground, keep possession of that ball, and then get the ball into your opponent's territory. And then there's a the thing called defensive play. And the aim of that is you are to hold your ground as the opponent comes and tries to gain it. Your job is to try and gain possession of the ball if you can and then turn that thing around, gain ground against him and get your ball in his territory. 
in American football, you have to dig in. You have to get sweaty and dirty. It's ugly. And it puts you in direct collision with your opponent, which is why you need a brain bucket. And Paul, this apostle of Christ, this sent one of Christ, this missionary, this church planter, he's sent out from the church at a place called Antioch. And he goes on these three arcing journeys, taking a bigger circuit each time. And he's actually going into the Roman pagan world. And as he goes around this world, he's going amongst what he says here in this letter, are Gentile sinners. Now for you and me, that's just like a forensic description of these people. But for Paul the Jew, that was a slur. You see, the Jews were God's people. They were the ones who were chosen. They were the ones who had the law, the promises, everything, the covenant. And then out there are these goyim, these Gentiles who are sinful scumbags. He was sent out amongst them. People who worshipped a Caesar, not God. People whose ethics and sexual practices were deviant beyond compare. And in doing so, he was in offensive play. He was in Satan's backyard, scoring points, taking territory. But the truth is that no sooner than he had planted these little churches in these pagan cities and his back's turned as he goes on to the next job, false teachers rose up and infiltrated these churches and then they contaminated the gospel. That's what was going on here in Galatia. If you read the New Testament, you'll discover in Paul's letters, he talks about many topics. How you should or shouldn't eat your steak. Whether bacon's okay. Which particular days of the week are more sacred than others. His thoughts about marriage. His thoughts about singleness. And sometimes he's like, you know, this is what God's saying and sometimes this is what I think. But the closer he gets to the issue of the gospel of freedom the more militant he becomes. You can imagine, the more he's talking about the gospel, he reaches for his brain bucket and his pads and his makeup, and he's ready for defensive play. He is going to defend this gospel, and so he doubles down. And that's what this letter is to the Galatians. And so incensed by these false teachers and gobsmacked by the insanity of these new Christians who've decided to effectively abandon their faith, he weaponizes. He pulls the pin on his great hand grenade and he drops that grenade on the church of the Galatians. Now you might not know this, but in the first century world there was kind of a way that you wrote letters to people. Starting off, you'd tell them who you were. You know, in the West, we've got it a bit wrong. You have to read three pages of the letter to find out who actually sent it to you, don't you? But he says, right out of the starting blocks, it's me, it's Paul. And then normally there'd be some kind of nice greeting and an exhortation, maybe some nice things said about them and maybe a prayer. But here, he doesn't entertain that at all. Straight out of the blocks, he's saying to them, I am gobsmacked. That so quickly after you were set free, you were turning to a different gospel. 
And so this morning, I, I just want to kind of give us some helpful coat hooks to, to hang his arguments on. And the first one is simply this, the gospel, what is it? You know, the piece of ground that Paul is defending when he drops his grenade is the gospel of freedom. But what exactly is the gospel? If you're a Christian here today, presumably you've said yes to the gospel, but what have you actually said yes to? Well, I want to tell you. You see, there's a kingdom, and it's ruled by a great king. He's holy, and he's loving, and he's just, and he exists in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means he's constantly existing in power and constantly existing in community, in relationship. And within that, there's this beautiful unity as he practices his rule and reign. And wherever his rule and reign is exercised, there is righteousness, there is peace, and there's joy. Sounds like a pretty good deal, hey? But it gets better. He decides this thing is so good that he doesn't want to just enjoy it by himself. And so he creates man and woman in his image. Adam and Eve, you know the story. And we're told, in the image of God, he made them male and female. He made them. He made image bearers. That means they have the same identity as him. That they're royal bloodstock. It means that they're created for relationship, not just with each other, but actually with the creator of the universe and the creator of them. And on top of that, he calls them to be ambassadors, to be vice regents who will exercise his amazing government rule over the created universe. It's even better, hey? No, okay, right, okay. I think it's pretty good. I get quite excited. You could help me with amen or something like that. If I'm bombing, just shout, help him, Jesus. But here's the problem. Adam and Eve, they totally mess it up and they rebel. And instead of loving him as king, they decide they want to be king. And in doing so, everything falls apart. They lose their identity. You know, Jesus calls people in the New Testament who don't follow God children of the devil. That doesn't mean there was some bizarre, wicked black mass where all sorts of unmentionable things happened and they were the result of it. No, no, he's just simply saying, people without God follow someone else and they take on the characteristics of him. That's what fatherhood's about, isn't it? I had the joy this week of going to Chris's house with Josh, my son, who's got long hair and plays a guitar. Funny that, because that's exactly who I am inside. I'm (laughs) long-haired and I play guitar really well. They lose their identity. They lose their relationship with each other and this amazing king. And the result is they lose the right and the resources to exercise his government over that created order. And it's a problem. And it spirals down into chaos and pain. And so God, the king, does something about it and he comes personally. 2,000 years ago, he walked this planet and he died on a Roman cross to pay for their sin, to pay for your sin, to pay for my sin. And now he offers us amnesty. He says, I'm coming back. 
I am coming back, and when I come back, I'm going to be ruling, not serving. So here's the amnesty. I've paid it all on the cross. I've lived the life that I expected of you, so we're all quits. Just follow me. That's all I want you to do, is believe in me, put your faith in me, in what I've done, in who I am, and we're all good. And he's coming back. And those who've said, I'm in, get to inherit that kingdom for all eternity. That is huge. That is like better than anything you can binge on Netflix. That is the great story of the history of the universe. And the key to that turnaround in that story is that he gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. Sin is the great blight on humanity. It's the thing that stops every single person from experiencing the beautiful order that is the righteousness, peace and joy of his kingdom. The great American psychologist Carl Menninger said this. He said, I could empty 75% of the wards in my psychiatric hospitals if people would just believe these four words. Your sins are forgiven. That's profound, isn't it? And so verses 3 to 5, you might just want to look at them if you've got a Bible in front of you. Paul comes straight off the bat and he lays out his defensive play. He says, grace and peace to you. Grace, that means the, the unearned initiative of God. That God's the prime mover here. He's the one at work. He's the one putting the effort in. And because of that, there is peace. And that means a state of well-being because no longer are we at war with God. He goes on to say, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. That means he did it. He paid the price. He filled the gap. He absorbed all that righteous and just wrath that was due us because we fall short of the standards of God. He did it all and he did it to deliver us from this present evil age. You know, there's been a lot of trend in the last 20 years for the church to become hip and cool and just like the world. And I want to say to you, we are nothing like the world. We're nothing like the world because we've been rescued from it and we've been changed from it and our destination is different from the rest of the world. And then he goes on saying, all of this is the will of God to whom be the glory. And I just want to say this to you this morning. Do you know that the goal of the gospel is his glory? See, we live in a cultural age with Facebook and Instagram and blogging and tweeting. Well, it's all about us. Look what I had for dinner. Look where I went on holiday. Look at the new thing I've bought. It's all about me, how amazing I am. (laughs) And the truth of the gospel is, it's all about him. Now, I'm not advocating for a moment we buy into that old lie, which is, I'm just a worm. 
Because the truth is, he is making much of you and me. He took us, who were by, ob- by nature objects of wrath. And he is transforming us from glory to glory until one day we will attain to the likeness of the creator of the universe. Do you realize how much he's making of you? He is making a huge amount of you so that you can then make much of him. I was having a conversation with somebody after the first service today and I said, you know, I I quite often say to my kids, you know, anything good you see in me, that is him. And when you get those awkward ouch moments where I'm being a lousy human parent and I'm missing the mark, that's just me. And don't confuse me with Jesus. But the good stuff in me, that's only because of Jesus. And if you don't believe me, the most well-known psalm in the universe says this, He restores my soul and He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not with the result of works, so that no one may boast. In Revelation 4.10, we're told about the elders who take their crowns, which are their reward for what they did on earth, and they toss them at the feet of him who is the king. It's all about him. And so what I want to do is leave you with a little equation here. Jesus plus nothing is everything. That's the point Paul is making, and he makes it for a good reason. Because he goes on to say the gospel is actually at stake and he lays out what's at stake. See, here's the accusation, verse 6. You are turning to a different gospel. See, in those days, the church was a really weird affair. The very first Christians were not Christians. They were Jews who believed in Messiah. And so they had all of their ethnic and cultural baggage still attached So they did things like celebrate the feasts of Israel. They went to synagogue on a Saturday, Shabbat. They did all of that kind of stuff. Now, there's something I want to say here, which is simply this, that suddenly there's these Gentiles who get saved, and they get saved on the basis of what Jesus has done, and these Jews look at them and go, but but they're not following our faith. What they need to do is be circumcised. If you want to be saved and enter the family of God, yes, Jesus saves, but you actually need to be circumcised as well because that's what Abraham's covenant says. If you're not circumcised, you can't enter the assembly of the Lord. You can't be part of his people. And so they started advocating Jesus plus circumcision. I just want to say this. Jesus has to be bigger than our ethnic and cultural backgrounds. I love being part of this church. When I first came, we were all white, middle class. And over the last few years, as I've got up to preach from time to time, it's amazing to see God filling this place with literally every tribe and tongue. I mean, that's the picture of Revelation, is it? Every people are going to be there in heaven, represented, praising and worshipping him. But I want to tell you this. 
our ethnic and cultural background should not be more powerful than the culture of his kingdom. And that, that actually means that for some of us, and by some of us I mean all of us, we have blind spots in our cultural and ethnic background. We have things that actually don't quite align us with how he thinks and works, and we shouldn't be shy about putting those things to death. Because in heaven it's one people, and the culture is the kingdom. And so... You've got these saved Jews who are effectively Christians and they're aware of their racial brothers and sisters and they don't want to upset them. They don't want to get into trouble with them. So they say, well, what we'll do is we'll do Jesus and we'll do circumcision. And Paul hits this. He says, am I trying to get the approval of men? Am I trying to be a man pleaser? That's what we call groupthink. Do you know that we all have groupthink? There was an experiment done years ago... um, where uh, some uh, sociologists, psychologists, I don't know, some ologists, they, they set up this fake job interview and they filled a waiting room full of actors who were waiting for an interview. And then they got a guy in who actually applied for this fake job. So he thought he was one of many interviewees. And then whilst they're all sat, sitting there in the waiting room, they set the fire alarm off. But they've told all the actors, whatever you do, don't move. So the alarm goes off and this guy's like, hello, what's going on here? Nobody's moving. And they ramp it up and they start wafting smoke under the door. And he's like getting up and he's like, what's wrong with these crazy... But the power to fit in is so intense that he actually sits back down again in what effectively could be a building that burns into death. That's what groupthink does. Paul says, I'm not playing that game. Fear of man is actually the doorway to religion. In verse 14, he talks about it more. He says, don't you know I was zealous for the traditions of my fathers? Do you know what that means? The Jews had 613 laws given in the law of Moses. The Pharisees came along and said, hey, hey. We don't want to break the law, so what we're going to do is we're going to make thousands of other laws to stop us from even getting close to breaking the law. So God's law says, keep the Sabbath holy, don't work. So the Jews created 29 different categories of work that you were not allowed to do. So you have bizarre situations like this. On the Sabbath, you cannot comb your hair because that's raking. And on the Sabbath, you can't drag a chair across the floor of your house because you might put a groove in the dust and that's ploughing. And that's work. And even to this day in Israel, they have Shabbat lifts. Lifts that automatically stop at every floor in the building because it would be work to press the button. And we laugh at that, don't we? I wouldn't. And here's why. He said, I was zealous to keep the traditions of my fathers. And in doing so, he himself broke the law of God because he said, I viciously and violently persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Paul is a murderer. In trying to keep the traditions of man, he broke the real law of God. 
And that's where legalism and religion leads. It takes you to only one place where people end up enslaved and broken. And most of the time, the people who are enslaved and broken are the ones who are under legalism. Do you understand what's at stake here? And so when you go down that legalistic or that religious route, there's like a whole bunch of stuff that happens. The first thing is you become a smug, religious hypocrite. Paul tells this, um, Jesus tells this story of the Pharisee in the marketplace. You know, the one there, there's this poor, humble sinner in the corner, can't even look up to heaven, he's forgive me God, a sinner. And the Pharisee steps in with all of his laws. And he's like, God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of these scum. I mean, those aren't the actual words, but that's the inference. I'm not like this sinner over here and, oh, that one over there. And we laugh at that stuff, don't we? We laugh at it, but the truth is, that is us. That is us so often. I'll just share a, a story with you a couple of, no, no, more than a couple of years ago. A few years back, um, there was a couple I knew, and they had a bit of a whoopsie, and the two became three. And I remember thinking, yep, saw that coming. Yeah, could see that coming on Facebook two years ago. No surprise at all. Thank you, I never made a mistake like that. <laughs> and then Holy Spirit just kind of went, <clears throat> uh, Mark? And I was like, yes? Can I have a quick word with you? Said, yeah, sure. What is it, Lord? And he said, um, well, you know when you were out shopping the other day and... Um, that really beautiful creation of mine walked by. You know, the one in the attention-grabbing outfit? And you sort of looked, and I was like, yeah. And he goes, and then you pressed play button on the tape of how you would like that story to end. And I realized the only difference between me and my friends who had been judging so harshly was they got busted. Because for them, their sin went public. And I was lucky enough that mine was private. And that's what legalism does. You play your highlights tape against everyone else's blooper reel. And there's only one person who's going to come out good in that, and that's you. And the gospel says this. You're all on a level playing field. All of you. We're all on a level playing field. Secondly, you end up, if you go down the legalistic route, of bearing an unbearable weight. Chapter 5, verse 3 of Galatians says, whoever accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. All 613 of them. Never can you have a bacon sandwich again. Never can you have a cheeseburger Just those two alone are a weight I cannot bear. (laughs) So what is the point of the law? If you can't keep it, well, it's simply this. Chapter 3, verse 19, the law was added because of transgressions. The law was never meant to be a cure for your failure. It was only ever designed as a diagnostic. I had a friend who found himself 
in hospital in an MRI scanner because he'd had a grand mal seizure. And it turns out that the reason for that grand mal seizure was a tumour on his brain that if it was not operated on, would kill him within two years. They could have put him in that MRI scanner every day for the next two years. He would not have got healed. It would have just kept giving the same diagnosis. The law can never cure your sin. All it can do is show you that you need a saviour. It's Jesus who is the cure. So it's an unbearable weight. Thirdly, your effort's going to kill you. Verse 6 and 7. You're turning so quickly to a different gospel, which Paul then says actually isn't. There isn't another gospel. In fact, it's a bunch of troublers who are distorting the gospel. Uh, I'm getting used to very vocals at the moment. That's an interesting experience. Um, in my late teens and 20s, I took lots of drugs. And um, it feels a bit like I'm back there. Okay? Because um, like very vocals, you have to look straight ahead. You have to do this to find the right focus point. And I was driving along the other day and did the lifesaver check over my shoulder, as I do when I'm pulling out of a junction. And everything was like... <laughs> like this and the side and it was everything was distorted I thought this thing was going to hit me and then when I looked properly straight on it was miles away that's what another gospel does it distorts things it twists them out of perspective Paul says verse 6 I can't believe that you are deserting him who called you that's what another gospel does to you it means you desert him chapter 5 verse 4 you are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law you have fallen away from grace and that's a terrible thing and that's why Paul pulls the pin and drops this hand grenade and so the equation is this Jesus plus anything equals nothing you get that he is so awesome you cannot add anything to him that will improve the situation. As he goes into defensive play about who he is, that actually he's not some kind of second-hand apostle, he was set apart from birth by God for this very task, which means that when he speaks, he has apostolic authority, which means he gets to write the Bible. And then he says, I didn't get some gospel second-hand from a bunch of other people. I had a revelation of Jesus like there was me and Jesus pitched up and he said Paul take some notes the people need to know this he defends who he is and his message and he throws the grenade and he drops it into the middle of legalism and there is a whole bunch of shrapnel firstly verse 6 I am gobsmacked I am appalled, I am astonished that you're giving up so quickly on Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1. Who has bewitched you and put you under a spell? Verse 6, chapter 1. I can't believe that you're deserting him. Verse 8, 9. If anyone preaches another gospel, let them be damned by God. It's not very Christian, that, is it? Because, you know, Christians are meant to be nicey-nicey. Do not be deceived. And my favourite of the whole letter, chapter 5, verse 12, there's a bunch of people, they're troubling you, they think that the snipping away of a little bit of skin makes them righteous. Well, if that's so, why don't they go and chop the whole 
thing <laughs> off. <laughs> the whole thing. Many years later, when Paul is within weeks of losing his life, he writes this to the Philippians, chapter 3, verses 4 to 8. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may may gain Christ. I want to say to you, when he talks about rubbish there, There is no English translator in the world brave enough to translate that as it is. The King James Version gets close. It talks about dung. But I'm going to put it in its proper context. You know that really huge curry you go for on a Friday night? You know like Saturday morning? In the loo? That? That's what he considers his former life of religion and legalism. It's a bomb going off. Now we're going to close in a minute, so if you have to get kids, please just be aware of the time. There will be a thing come up. But I want, to, I want us to end just with a piece of music because I want us to reflect. And here's why I want us to reflect. I would guess if you're a Christian here, it's because you have actually been saved by grace. You saw the free message and you want, yes, I want that. But here's the temptation. We get saved by grace and we then try and please God by living by law. Oh, if only I was a bit more this. If only I didn't do that as much. And we put lots of effort into it as if that can somehow ingratiate us with him. You are in Christ. Your perfect life has been lived and your debt has been totally paid. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you're thinking, well, you know, I don't feel kind of good enough to kind of come to God. I want to say to you, great, you're in the perfect place. Because he's done it all for you. And so I'm, I'm going to ask Ed to put a song on for us. Be mindful of the time. We're going to kind of sort of officially end here. But I just urge you to stay and reflect on the words of this song and let God minister to you. Because the heart of our gospel is not legalism. It's not do what you want. It is actually freedom in Christ. is built on nothing less and 
Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, holy in Jesus' name. Darkness veils his lovely face. I rest on his unchanging grace. And in every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds. On Christ, solid rock I stand. All other ground is a sinking sand. All other ground is a sinking sand. His covenant, His blood supports me in a winning flood. When all around my soul gives way, even is all my hope and stay. Shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand. For the throne, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is a sinking sand. All other ground is a sinking sand. His covenant, His blood supports me in the whelming flood. All around, my soul gives way. You are the Stay. 
When you shall come with trumpet sound Oh, may I there And you'll be found In your right justness alone, hopeless to stay, hopeless to stay, hopeless to stay before the throne. Yeah. On Christ the solid. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is a sinking sand. Oh, Christ, a solid rock I stand. Sinking sand, all of the world is a sinking sand.